Hey, and if you would uh, take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, we have some back here on our resource table, but we're going to be using it a ton this morning, so please just keep it open there in front of you. We're going to be looking at several different passages of Scripture today um, as we wrap up the book of Zechariah, and uh, that leaves us with only three weeks left in this study that we began almost a year ago, the study of the Old Testament Minor Prophets. Next week, we will begin the book of Malachi, and, uh, and then we'll finish Malachi and jump into the Gospel of John right at the beginning of Lent. And so I am, I'm really excited to wrap this up. Uh, but I'm also really excited to get into the Gospel of John. I've already been digging into it some in preparation for that, and it's, it's just, it's so good. So, uh, today we are, in a sense, going back to the beginning of Zechariah. And so, before we look at our primary text today, I want you to turn with me back to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. And we're going to begin, actually, in verse 1, and just, just get a refresher here on how this book begins. <clears throat> Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the eighth, eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you. You know, I see this really as being like the thesis statement of the book of Zechariah. And to get us started this morning, I want to point out a couple of things about this statement. Um, and, and, and there are things that we've said not only about this particular statement, return to me and I'll return to you, um, but many other similar things that the Lord has said here in the book of Zechariah. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, this is a conditional statement. And, and we've noted that many times throughout this book as we've looked at different things that God has said through Zechariah. God's returning to the people of Judah is predicated on them returning to him. And this in many ways is the theme of this book. God's promises are not in spite of the people's actions. They are in light of the people's actions. So many of the statements he makes are conditional. He doesn't say, even if you won't return to me, I will return to you. That's what some people hope will be the case, that, that I can live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do, be controlled by other lords and masters, but in the end, God's going to save me because that's my understanding of what love is. That love in today's world, especially in sort of this postmodern context, love is me doing whatever in the world I want to do and you accepting it and approving of it. If you don't accept me and approve of what I do and how I live, then you don't love me. Completely different than the biblical understanding of love. I was talking this week with one of our church members who is sharing the gospel with a friend, and the friend was confused about how a God of love could ever punish anybody. Right? How can a God of love ever punish anybody? Especially if my understanding of love is that love is acceptance. But the reality is, is, is if God doesn't, if he doesn't punish evil or vanquish evil or evildoers, he isn't very loving, is he? Like, how can God both love us 
and yet not in any way seek to stop those who would do evil to us or in the world around us. Like if you say you love your children, but you take no steps to protect them in a moment of danger, is your love real? Like if you say that, that if you say that God is this God of love and yet he allows evil to just perpetuate unchecked and that that is a sign of his love, that just doesn't compute with the way that scripture presents him and his love because his love is coupled with his perfect justice, right? He's not only perfect in love, he's also perfect in every way. So these two get put together in the scriptures, God's love is seen through his perfect justice. God doesn't force his grace on people who are set on pursuing their own path, but he gives it freely to those who respond to his kindness with faith and repentance. So within this statement, return to me and I will return to you. Within that statement is a call for people to return to him and the reward is himself. I think as we said last week, he is this pearl of great price, this, this kingdom of God. Like, it's not just some place. It's, it's the fact that it's his realm. It's the place where he rules and reigns. It's the place where his power is um, being accomplished in exactly the way that he would have it accomplished. So the reward, the pearl, the treasure buried in the field is, is God. It's, it's being with him. So this statement is conditional. And then secondly, this statement is multifaceted. Last week, we talked about the kingdom of God. We explored the concept of the already but not yet, this idea that we experience the kingdom of God now in sort of the spiritual sense. We experience his power in the here and now. We've been forgiven. Um, we are now in the kingdom of God, and yet we do not see it fully. We do not physically experience it fully right now. It's already but not yet. We said the kingdom of God is this present reality into which all believers have entered, and yet we don't have this full experience of it. Instead, our current experience is more on a spiritual level, right? But one day Christ will return. Um, he will usher in the fullness of God's kingdom. And um, I think this is why we are to pray, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that this is something we should long for. It's something we should be desirous of. It's something that we should pray for. So we experience the power of God's kingdom spiritually now, and we, in a spiritual sense, see God's kingdom in and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But one day we will physically experience its fullness so the exact same thing is happening in this return to me and I will return to you statement. There is a spiritual level in which God will return to the people through the rebuilt temple, for example, which is a significant part of the book of Zechariah, perhaps through a restored priesthood. But then on a physical level, I think God is literally saying, I will physically come to you. I will physically return to you. Like, you will once again dwell with me, and I will dwell with you. He's describing this restoration um, that is to come. In the beginning, in the garden, the man and the woman walked not only in God's spiritual presence, they walked in God's physical presence. 
But sin, disobedience, it created a chasm between God and man. And so you could say, in a sense, that in the garden, the man and the woman walked away from God. They left God. And as a result, God's physical presence was removed from man. Even though God, thankfully, never fully left mankind, no one sees him. No one walks with him in a physical way. But God, through Christ, which much of this book of Zechariah has been pointing to, God, through Christ, is desirous to restore things back to that garden state, to the way they were. But the garden only works if the people in the garden want to be there, right? It only works if they see God as the treasure, as the reward, if they are faithful and obedient to him. So in many ways, this, this statement is the re- reverse of what happened in the garden. Man and woman walked away from God, so God removes his physical presence. And in the same way, he says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. Does that make sense? So with these things in mind, let's look at today's text. Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord... When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so there is a lot here. I don't think we're going to get through all of it today. Zechariah is one of these, but we could have spent the whole year on the book of Zechariah, right? Because there is so much here. Zechariah is constantly alluding to other prophets. Uh, there's all kinds of things we see in the New Testament that point back to Zechariah. But he ends this book with visions of the coming Messiah and the coming Messianic kingdom, the kingdom that is being ushered in through Christ. Last week, we looked at what is already... Remember, already but not yet. We looked at what is already, that Christ has come and died and risen. And uh, as Paul said this morning, that 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 is like the, the core of the gospel, this work that has been accomplished on the cross. This thing he delivered, Paul said, a first, as, as a first importance. We saw that Christ came, died, rose, and that eternal life, the presence of the Holy Spirit, are offered to all who would follow in faithful obedience. 
This week, though, we see the not yet. And even though Zechariah does not give us a specific date or timeline, it seems clear, to me at least, that we are looking into the future, into a future time. Notice it uses that phrase, the day, multiple times. And throughout the Minor Prophets, we have continually come back to this topic of the day of the Lord. And we've said that the day of the Lord is a day on which God's power is displayed, like where, where God sort of steps in and does something incredible. And in many ways, there are multiple days of the Lord that are seen throughout the history of Israel and Judah. Um, there are multiple days w- that are both positive and negative. One where g- days where God will give a tremendous blessing, like, for example, saving the people from Egypt, right, through the Passover. And there will be days of the Lord that are terrible, like when Assyria comes in, invades, and takes everybody into exile. But then there is, like, the day. The day of the Lord, like this coming future day of restoration. And it's a day that will be unlike any of these other days. It will it'll be a day where things are, are truly like changed eternally. I think that's what we're looking at today. As I said, Zechariah doesn't tell us exactly when this is going to happen. He doesn't say it's going to be on this date or after this blood moon or whatever the case may be. He doesn't say anything like that, right? But what he does say is that this king of the earth will come and will sit on his throne. Verse 9 when the Lord is king over all the earth. Now, he's king already, right? He's sovereign even now. But one day, his lordship will be fully experienced. And evil will be completely eliminated. And sin will be removed. And death will be removed. And I think that's what that line at the end of this text, the Lord will be one and his name one means. It should remind us of the Shema or the great commandment, I think, in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What, what, what that means when it says the Lord your God is one is there are no other gods. There's not a pantheon of gods, certainly. There's one He is one. And what Zechariah is telling us is that there is a day coming where it will be clear beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think, to everybody. The Lord is one. This is describing a day in which the entire earth will realize that there are, in fact, no other gods. And I don't mean gods even in the most, like, formal sense, There's nothing else that takes the place of this one God, the creator of all things. Let's go back to the beginning of this text, because it starts off in a way that does not sound good at all, right? Verse 1, behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. That doesn't sound good. He says, I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house is plundered, and the women raped, and half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Yikes. 
Zechariah describes a great battle that is to take place. And this certainly would not be the first time for Jerusalem. And it's not entirely clear here, again, when something like this would happen. Is this something in the future from now? Or is this actually reflective of the many times throughout history that this very thing has happened to Jerusalem? I mean, there have been numerous instances where what I just read to you has happened, where armies have invaded Jerusalem, and they've taken the spoils from the city, and they've divided it up, and they've abused people, and they've carried people away into exile, or they've murdered people. I mean, as we've studied the minor prophets, there have been no fewer than three superpowers that have either knocked at the door of Jerusalem, or who have actually come in and overtaken Jerusalem. And fast forward 400 plus years into the future during the day of Jesus, there's yet another superpower that's in control of Jerusalem, right? So Jerusalem has always been experiencing this kind of stuff, right? So it's not entirely clear what battle is being described here or when this battle will take place or if this is even one battle versus the effects of many battles, many nations over the course of history laying claim to Jerusalem, abusing its inhabitants, plundering its riches. But notice that God is the one who will put an end to this evil. God is the one, verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. God never loses when he fights on a day of battle, by the way. Right? When he's actually fighting, he always wins. Verse 4, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And I think all this talk of the Mount of Olives should immediately make us think of Jesus. Um, as, as it tells us here in the text, this is like a ridge of low mountains to the east of Jerusalem, and it is a significant place in the Bible in general. Um, but especially in the life of Christ. Uh, Perhaps most notable is the fact that Jesus visits the Mount of Olives, which is sometimes called Olivet in the Scripture. He visits it three times in the final week of his life. Three times. First was, whether you realize it or not, something we looked at two weeks ago. The triumphal entry begins on the Mount of Olives. That's where he starts as he enters the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that we looked at. But then second, he gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is a sermon that is found in Matthew 24 and 25. If you would turn there with me, Matthew 24, 25, we're going to look at it in just a moment. So Jesus, in the middle of Holy Week, gives this sermon, um, And the sermon is all about the destruction that is to come for Jerusalem, but also how Jesus will return to sit on the throne as king of the earth, and that he will bring judgment against sin and evil with him at that time. So that's the second thing that happens in the Mount of Olives. And then the third thing that happens in the Mount of Olives is that Jesus leads his disciples there After the Last Supper, he leads them to a very specific place on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus prays with his disciples 
on the night of his arrest before Judas leads the Jews to him. And that's where they find him. That's where they arrest him. So I think all of these things are significant, certainly. Um, And they all have bearing on what we're reading in Zechariah. But I think think this is ultimately describing Jesus' return, what we see in Zechariah. So look at how Zechariah describes this in verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, a day unlike any other, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. Now, turn over Matthew 24. In the middle of the all of that discourse, Matthew 24, verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So clearly Jesus here is describing his return. That seems obvious. But notice he says there will be no sun or moon and no stars, but everyone will be able to see Christ coming on the clouds. So there will be no light, but everyone will see Sounds very similar to what Zechariah is talking about. Look back at Zechariah 14, verse 8. He also says, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So, so what river is it that runs through the city of Jerusalem? Do you guys remember? There's not one. There's not one. You might be inclined to say it's the Jordan River. The Jordan River is actually a good ways away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is significant as an ancient city because it is not built on water. And it's very strange, like in the scheme of ancient cities, that there's not a river running through the middle of town or that it's not built on a sea. Um, Jerusalem's kind of in the middle. If you look at a map, it's, it's away from the water a good bit. And yet somehow there's going to be these living waters that flow out from Jerusalem. They're going to flow to both the seas that are on either side of the country, but where do they come from? Where do they come from? The psalmist says that God is actually the river. That God is the river that flows from Jerusalem. In Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Like, we really need him in the midst of tribulation. We really need him in the midst of battle. We, we need him in the, in, when we're facing our enemies. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Jerusalem the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Another significant text here that we don't have time to dig into is Ezekiel 47. 
prophet Ezekiel has this vision of restoration. And in his vision, there is this mighty river of fresh water that is flowing out from the temple. And this water gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it brings life to everything it touches. I think the ultimate takeaway from these images is that the real abundant life is only found in the power of God through Christ. What does Jesus tell the Samaritan woman at the well? Right? There, there are seemingly these living waters that will be flowing out from the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus answered the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. She's thinking physically, practically. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It seems to me that in light of everything that we're reading and what we experience in our lives and in our world today, that many of us are pursuing water that is not living water, which is a big part of Jesus's point to this woman. This woman has been pursuing water, metaphorically. She's been pursuing something to quench her thirst in the form of relationships with other men. And Jesus tells her, I know all about that. I know, I know who you've been with and what you've done. You've, you've been looking for meaning and purpose, life, through these relationships. But if you knew who was talking to you, if you really knew, if you really got it, if you really saw who I was, you would understand that what I have to give you is not like the water that comes out of this well. It's not like what you're going to find in a relationship or what you're going to find through money or pursuit of success or your family or your children or your marriage or anything. It, it's something completely different because this living water that flows from Christ who is ultimately the temple, like the one who really is the center of the city of God. If you understood this water that flows from me, you would understand you would drink of it and never be thirsty again. You would never look for provision or sustenance in anything else because you would be filled. Return to me and I will return to you. I want to leave you today with a parable from the Olivet Discourse. And I really see it as, as like the, the linchpin in many ways of, of this short sermon. It's, it's kind of at the center of the sermon, and I think it's um, in many ways a summation of much of what Jesus is saying throughout this sermon. Turn to Matthew 25. And starting in verse 1, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, 
They took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in and with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's kind of a scary parable in some ways. But I hope you get Jesus' point here. Jesus' point here is that out of these ten virgins, there are five who are living in a state of expectant longing and anticipation for the coming of the bridegroom. And this is evidenced in the fact that they are well prepared for his coming. Right? They, they have plenty of oil for their lamps. This isn't just something that they think might happen in the future. It's not just something that they sort of intellectually assent to or claim to believe. Their, their belief in the coming of the bridegroom, even, in the, even though they don't know when it's going to happen, even though he's been delayed a long time, their, their belief in his coming is evidenced in their preparation for it. And then you have the foolish virgins who are the, the contrast, who seemingly think the bridegroom is coming, and yet in no way have they prepared their lives for the reality of his coming. Jesus seems to suggest that, that on that day, this day of the Lord, on that day, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do this for you? And I will say, away from me, I never knew you. Which is basically what he says here at the end of this parable. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. In light of everything that Zechariah has been saying to us, um, this idea of return to me and I will return to you, this picture of what is to come in the messianic kingdom, this picture of Christ as the pearl of great price, as the treasure buried in a field, and, and it's worth me literally selling everything I have or giving everything I have away in order to buy the field so that I can have the treasure. It is the living water, and if I drink it, I'm never going to thirst again. In light of all of this, we look at this, this parable today, and, and the question is, are you, are you wise or are you foolish? Like, is, is your life truly being lived as if this is a present and future reality? That we have a real king who is coming, who will return, who will sit on his throne, who will vanquish evil, who will put an end to sin and death. That, that that's an actual thing and, and that that is the greatest thing that could ever happen to us and as a result it is worthy of us giving the whole of our lives over to him and his work in his kingdom 
Or are you this person who says, yeah, 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 I buy into some of that, but yet the evidence of your life is that it is being lived in service to other lords and masters. That there are other passions and longings that drive you and direct you far more than the reality of what is to come in Christ and what is even now in Christ. At our book club the other night, we talked about the fact that the enemy lies to us, but those lies play to disordered desires in our lives, our flesh, things that we long for that are not of God. We all struggle with that. We all struggle with sin, right? None of us do this perfectly. And that those things get affirmed by the world. And and if we're not careful, if we don't continually redirect our longings and our desires and our passions towards him... Because we recognize the validity and the reality of his, of his presence now and his coming in the future. We will inadvertently, slowly, meticulously become more and more like the world. And interestingly, the world around here is very religious. Like, it's very Christian-y. As we said the other night, it's Christianized. Meaning there's, there's language that sounds good. And there's, there's seemingly some action that looks good. People would like go to church or participate in religious rituals. But, but what God's really looking for is your heart. Not just your outward actions. He, he's looking for the heart. And he wants this, the heart to be so changed that it, it moves from the inside out to affect your actions. So has your heart been moved and changed in such a way that it is leading you to forsake the things of this world to give your attention and your passion and your longing and your desire to what is and what is to come? And so let me close this morning by just calling us to dwell on that question in our lives. None of us can look at ourselves and go, yeah, we do this perfectly. But what is the trajectory for you? Is it, is it towards this living water flowing out of Christ that brings true life and joy and hope? Or is it towards the things of this world that bring anxiety and worry and fear and death. Let us take a moment to, uh, to contemplate that. And then we will pray. Father, as I look at my own life, there is so much that is lived in service to other things that are not you. It is easy for me to live with a fear of man rather than a fear of you. An eagerness to please other people more so than you. A comfort in hiding things from other people that you see fully. 
And Father, I pray this morning for myself and for everyone here, God, that you would illuminate to us, as I said earlier, the parts of our lives where we have not fully submitted to you as king of all the earth. Where we don't live as if you will return and that you will separate the sheep from the goats and you will separate the wise virgins from the foolish virgins. It is clear that you are not simply looking for people to give you lip service. You are looking for hearts that desire to return to you, hearts that desire to be obedient to you. Father, we thank you for your grace because we do not and cannot do this perfectly. And so we thank you that through Jesus, a way has been offered for us to be justified before you And that in that, you begin the process of conforming us to the image of Christ, of helping our lives to look more and more like Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us all a deep-seated and deep-rooted desire for the things of your kingdom and that that desire would truly permeate our lives, that it would supersede and depose the other lesser gods that we um, are apt to give power and prominence in our lives. Lord, that you truly would be our Lord and Master, not simply in word, but also in practice. And that, God, we would walk in this state of of recognition that because we have you, we have everything. And that because we have you, we lack nothing. And because we have living water, we will never thirst again. Father, may that reality, may that truth change our existence. give us boldness and courage and hope and joy as we increasingly submit to you and your spirit. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.